0: This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luc olivier
1: And I'm Yannick Mayen.
0: And what's our topic for this week, Yannick?
1: The revenge of mobile payments.
0: Oh, wow. We can say this is the longest follow-up ever. I think we had a title <laughs> called that, right? I think so. But not for, not for not for the exact same reasons, though. No. But before we start, I think you have some follow-up.
1: Yes. So... Uh, two more episodes left until I'll do a link to the past episode in April. It's going to be episode 159 on April 25th. Get your playthroughs going. I have restarted mine.
0: <laughs> I like. Oh, good, good. That's good to hear. I like it that you use that as a reminder for ourselves to every two yes. weeks when we record because I haven't played. I think for maybe the last month, I would say. So I need to continue my playthrough uh, before uh, end of April.
1: Next up, we already have some follow-up of Final Fantasy VII Ever Crisis and how they're going to be uh, monetizing that. Uh, There was a magazine interview that came out uh, not too long after our last episode where they clarified that uh, the entire game will be free to play uh, and the monetization will come from a weapon gotcha system similar to Dissidia Final Fantasy Opera Omnia, which was a Final Fantasy mobile game that I did play. And the way that worked was basically if you had a three-star weapon which was relatively common or higher you could play the entire game from start to finish with no problem it's just if you want specifically to get a specific weapon that then you're going to have to resort to gotcha mechanics and dumping a bunch of money into the game uh they're probably going to be using this to uh allow for cosmetic tweaks on various characters, uh, maybe unlock special outfits. And then like, if you just want to play with Squall's Gunblade from Final, Final Fantasy VIII for some reason, you'll probably be able to unlock that as well. But it seems that pretty much all of the content in the game is going to be playable for free. So that was reassuring because a lot of people were very, very worried about where that game was going. And uh, it doesn't seem that bad. As someone who played Opera Omnia, that system was quite reasonable. And uh, I think if it works exactly the same way, we should be fine. Next up is another free stuff alert. Um, so PlayStation is giving a bunch of games for free. Uh, they want people to stay at home and play video games, uh, to not go out during the pandemic. Uh, so they are giving away, I believe, 11 games total. Uh, completely for free no PlayStation Plus subscription required to redeem or play the games Uh, some of these are available right now so ending on March 31st you can get Ratchet and Clank Uh, I played this game when it came out it was extremely good and it looks even better on PS4 Pro Uh, so highly recommended that then ending on April 23rd there are nine more games uh, Abzu, Enter the Gungeon, Res Infinite, Subnautica, The Witness, Astrobot Rescue Mission, which was a previous game of the year, Moss, Thumper, and Paper Beast. Uh, about half of those are PSVR games, and the other half are non-VR games. Uh, you can get all of those until April 23rd. And then April 19th to May 15th, Horizon Zero Dawn Complete Edition will be available uh for- Entirely for free so i'm actually pretty excited about that one i haven't played it yet but i've gotten it as a present for at least one or two family members uh so i am looking forward to uh trying out that game when it when it's available for me for free uh so uh if you like free stuff and you have a ps4 or ps5 i guess uh go redeem these you don't actually have to download them onto your system you can just choose add to library and you will be able to redownload them anytime later um, as long as the PS4 store stays up, lol. Uh, so, oh,
0: was there a shoot today? By the way, uh,
1: not that I know of.
0: Okay, because uh, again, uh, I'll make this quick. But I was trying to redeem uh Resident clanks, and uh, it failed. Um, and I tried to go see if it was because it was in my list of games, and then there was a fuck-up on the uh, PlayStation Store, and it couldn't load my list of games, and I was too lazy to boot up the PS4 to verify, so I was like, I'll look at it later, and I forgot to do that. So, uh, yeah, I I guess I had issues today to try to redeem it. I will Uh, say that a lot of
1: people were hammering the PlayStation Store because uh, the nine games that I mentioned that were not Ratchet & Clank all Mm -hmm. went live today.
0: Uh, That could be why, because, again, I tried around, like, uh, 12 12 Eastern time, uh, 12 p.m. uh, Eastern time here, which I think they usually update around uh, 9 9 a.m. Pacific, which would fit, so.
1: Yeah, I think that's when it went live, so you were probably just hammering the servers with everyone else. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Next up, I have some uh, clarification for something that we were wondering about with uh, how the PS5 was going to do PlayStation VR. Uh, Mm. They were talking about how you're going to need a weird adapter to uh, adapt the draft USB 3 connector on the back of the PS4 that you use for the PSVR camera uh, with the PS5's USB 3 slot uh, ports. Uh, And now the information is available. So if you go to playstation.com slash camera adapter, you can get, for absolutely free, one per household, uh, the dongle you need uh, to connect the PSVR camera to a PS5. Uh, you just need to provide the serial number of your PSVR processing box. And... Um, What's interesting about this is PS5 HD camera is not backward compatible with PSVR games. You absolutely have to use the PS4 camera for PSVR games, which is very strange. Uh, So I'm probably going to end up ordering this adapter just because I have no idea how long they're going to be offering it for. And if it's like so limited that it's one per household and there are going to be so few of these out in the wild, uh, I'm probably going to want one before I get a PS5. Uh, So... I guess, take note of that if you have a PSVR at home. And then last bit of follow-up, uh, aside from the entire rest of this episode, of course, is <laughs> that uh, the next-gen VR controller for PS5 was revealed uh, last week. And it's pretty interesting. It's very similar to other VR hand controllers on like um, the, uh, what used to be called the HTC Vive and all of that stuff. Uh, so looks very in-depth. And it doesn't seem to require a camera to track at all, unlike uh, the PlayStation Move and uh, technically the DualShock 4 is also tracked via camera. Instead, it will all be done via the headset, which implies that PS5 VR is going to be using inside-out tracking like modern PC VR headsets do. Ooh, uh, interesting. The headset does all of the tracking. So interesting tech notes on uh, the evolved VR that's coming to PlayStation 5. Uh, Of course, that assumes you can buy one which uh with the suez canal (laughs) currently being jammed who knows what that is going to be like um but yeah uh exciting news for vr fans
0: i do have some real-time follow-up by the way so i think we'll be able to use my uh joke title as a real title if we want because we only had uh we didn't have the longest follow-up ever but we did add quickest follow-up ever or too much follow-up oh okay so that's for that Hmm.
1: Interesting. Let's move into the main topic. Uh, So, I mean, we've alluded to it already. Uh, It's highly recommended that you listen to Mobile Payments Part 1 before you listen to this episode. Uh, Mobile Payments Part 1 was Episode 2 of Limitless Possibility. And it's really a defining episode for what the show would become, uh, especially for research-heavy episodes about a topic that we're passionate about. Um, And the reason I recommend you go listen to it is not necessarily because it's a strict prerequisite for this show, but this is going to assume you're familiar with terminology, uh, namely Suica, Felica, uh, Pasmo, terminology that's going to come up a lot throughout this show. Uh, You need to know what those things are. Now, I will briefly summarize a few takeaway points of that episode in a bit. Uh, So again, like it's not a strict prerequisite, but familiarity with the topic is recommended uh, to enjoy this episode to the fullest. Uh, Mobile payments part one was heavily focused on how contactless and mobile payment infrastructure flourished in the Tokyo metropolitan area in the early 2000s. We didn't really venture much into how that technology uh, evolved outside of the Tokyo metro area. And just timing-wise, Apple Pay launched around the time that we did that episode. And Apple Pay has been out for quite a few years by now. We've had a lot more experience using it. Uh, So my opinion on a lot of things has had time to change from using Apple Pay as my primary payment method for many years. Part two, which is this episode, is going to discuss how that mobile payment infrastructure expanded across Japan, the messy ongoing interoperability and consolidation story, And then, uh, something we've alluded to on multiple episodes in the past, the uptake of QR code payments at retail, Mm. which makes me extremely sad. (laughs) Um, so before we get into those topics, I, I do want to briefly like summarize what mobile payments part one was about more or less. It was like explaining how Japan was about a decade ahead in contactless and mobile payment technology compared to the rest of the world, uh, JR East's Suica Transit card. Uh, So when I mention Suica, I mean uh, the one that's owned by the JR East Railway. Uh, It was the first major contactless transit card uh, to go live in Japan. And it went live in 2001. And in 2001, NFC didn't exist yet. So they had to use the technology that was available at the time, uh, which was Felica, which is a Sony proprietary technology uh, that we will discuss a little bit more in in a bit. Um, let's say in theory, NFC did exist in 2001 when Suica went live. The technology that, uh, the West currently uses for mobile payments is EMV, uh, which is, well, it's half EMV and half NFC. Basically, EMV is the credit card standard that we use here in the West. And, uh, many EMV cards have NFC to do mobile payments with. So when you tap your card on, let's say a pay wave or something like that reader, uh, you're using the marriage of EMV cards with NFC technology. Uh, I'm just going to call this EMV payments because that's literally what everyone calls it.
0: By the way, do you know what EMV really means?
1: Europay MasterCard Visa.
0: Ah, oh, you did your own word. I'm so happy about, it. I'm so proud of you too.
1: Yes. Uh, so, The problem is, even if EMV did exist in 2001, which it very much did not, uh, well, the the EMV spec existed in 2001, but EMV as a contactless payment method did not exist, Uh, credit card adoption isn't high enough in Japan for that to be a viable payment method, especially for train ticketing. And let's say it was. Let's just pretend it was. Uh, EMV technology is too slow to actually handle peak Tokyo commuter, commuter traffic without creating jams it's the station gates so japanese transit gates are built with a target capacity of 60 passengers per minute this is for one gate you're able to treat one passenger per uh per second the actual need in peak hours is about 42 per minute so they overshoot it a little bit but that just gives you an idea of what the capacity needs are for these transit gates If you go look at Western EMV-based transit gates, they are currently targeting 30 passengers an hour. So that's half capacity. And Japanese studies show that actually, if your passenger flow is below 32 per minute, you get gems in Japan. Uh, Which means that all of EMV technology is not viable for use for Japanese transit. Which is pretty strong like comparison point that this technology that we are starting to see adopted throughout North America uh, in the last five years, let's say, um, is not even able to provide about half the capacity that Japan needs. So the need for contactless ticketing tech in Japan came before the availability of open industry standards. So Japan didn't really have much of a choice, but to piggyback on top of Sony's proprietary Felica technology And the entire infrastructure in the country developed in a way that was uniquely suited to the needs of the Japanese market. And that's kind of what Mobile Payments Part 1 was about. So now let's get into how that technology expanded across Japan. So I'm going to list out the big 10 IC cards in chronological orders. Uh, IC being integrated circuit cards. I'm going to be using this terminology a lot throughout the episode. So November 2001, Suica is launched by JR East. Uh, JR is Japan Rail. Uh, It used to be the national railways. They privatized and then split up into a bunch of different entities. Uh, JR East is kind of the big daddy of all the JRs. Uh, It is the one that leads the most technological innovation in all of the group. Um, November 2003, Ikoka goes live in JR West. So West part of the country gets their own card. August 2004, Pitapa goes live. Uh, That is owned by a Kansai Transit Consortium. So around Osaka, Kyoto area, uh, a bunch of different transit companies get together, make this card together. November 2006, Toika launches in JR Central. March 2007, uh, PASMO launches. PASMO is sort of the competitor to Suika in the Tokyo metropolitan area market. Uh, it is owned by a consortium of uh, Kanto area uh, transit companies. Uh, this includes Tokyo Metro. It includes includes basically everything that is not JR uh, in the Tokyo area. May of 2008, Nimoka launches. This is Nishi Railroad owned. Uh, March of 2009, we have two launches. We have Sugoka in JR Kyushu, and we have Hayakaken from Fukuoka City Transportation Bureau. October 2010, we have Kitaka, which is owned by JR Hokkaido. And then February 2011, we have Manaka, which is owned by a transit consortium in Nagoya. So those are the 10 big IC cards, and uh, they will come up later. They are actually, these 10 are more important than the rest of them. Then there are a bunch of smaller regional players, uh, so I'm going to list a bunch of them because there are a lot. There's Asaka, Do card, Sapika, Odeka, Isaka Ryuto, Ekomika, N plus T card, Iwasaki IC card, Rapika, Luluka, Emika, Randen IC card, CICA, I... Is that actually a real card? I think I might have tied here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Kinoka, Natch, Tsukika, Hanika, Itappi, Nikopa, Hareka, Paspi, Iruka, Okika, and Kumamon's IC card,
0: more, most importantly. Um, Wait a sec, though. Uh, I, I think I'm a bit lost, though. Are they all Filika based
1: Yes. Oh, okay. That, okay. That's now exactly makes a bit more where sense. I was going.
0: <laughs> okay, perfect.
1: All of these cards are built on Sony's Felica technology. So this is a short-range wireless technology that is comparable to NFC, but... Predates NFC. Uh, It's actually now part of the NFC spec as NFC-F. So if you ever see NFC-F, that is technically Felica. It's just they... Basically, they wanted people to be able to make NFC chips that were also compatible with Felica. And the way they got that to happen is to make it technically a splinter of the NFC spec retroactively, which is very weird.
0: And even NFC itself is different like standards if you can say Yeah, there's so.
1: an FCA, F C V, there's right, right. Yeah. so
0: it, it kinda of makes sense. Even if I understand what you mean, it's an extension, it's kind of a, a retrofit. Knowing that there's different formats and standard, it kinda of makes sense. Say A it's the same type of like contactless or like like proximity technologies that even if it's a bit different, it makes sense to be under the NFC umbrella these days.
1: Yep. And if you want to be like extremely reductive of the rest of the NFC spec, like you could actually interpret NFC-F as NFC fast because Felica is faster but slightly more primitive than the rest of the other NFC specs. Uh, But its speed is actually an asset for the Japanese transit uh, system. So at a high level, Felica cards are like USB thumb drives except they're addressable wirelessly. Uh, It's really just a standardized protocol to store data on an IC card and a bunch of conventions for secure and authenticated data blocks. Now, this this is the thing that I think you were alluding to earlier when you were asking if these cards are all Felica-based. Just because all these IC cards use Felica does not necessarily mean they are interoperable. Again, going back to the USB thumb drive analogy, you can mount a USB thumb drive on any computer. It doesn't mean you have the software to actually do anything with the files that are on the thumb drive. It could be formatted oh, in a no. file system your computer is completely unable to read. Uh-oh. Oh, <laughs> so each card may be storing things in completely incompatible ways. And there are software at the gate and at the payment terminal level that needs to handle what data is on these cards gracefully. And you might be shocked by some of the stuff that is not standardized. So there is a standardized uh, purse value, they call it. Uh, I guess it's, this would be the wallet value, except wallet and purse are kind of interchangeable in uh, Japanese. And uh this purse value is where you keep the money that's on the card, right? Well, some cards uh so when you buy one of these IC cards as a physical card, uh you put down a deposit. So if I go get a Suica 500 yen gives gives me a card with 0 yen on it, but there's a 500 yen deposit. And then if you ever turn in your card, which I don't actually know anyone who has ever turned in their card, but if you do, they give you the 500 yen back.
0: (laughs) Oh, it's kind of considered a a security deposit for the card itself.
1: Yes. Um, But again, like I I don't actually know of anyone who has ever handed in their card. Um, Well, some cards actually include the card deposit on the purse value. Others don't. So... Depending on what card you're reading, you have to take into consideration whether or not you need to actually account for the card deposit or not. Um, and th- this is just a simple example. There are a bunch of wacky examples of people doing crazy shit with the purse value. Uh, I don't want to go into them because they're too technical, but they're really stupid. Um there's no standardized way of declaring purse value limits or applying them. So, for example, on a Suica card, uh, you have a 20,000 yen limit on how much money you can charge onto a Suica card. But this is a limit that is applied through rules on the various devices that use that card. There's no system-level way to declare that limit and if you're dealing with trying to be interoperable with other cards, it's sort of up to you as the person handling that to actually use the limit correctly and apply it correctly. And again, not, not standardized. There's also just like real basic shit that really seems stupid. Like um, you can get named, uh, named IC cards for a lot of these. So uh, in case you lose it, uh, it can be revoked, I believe, or something like that. Uh, there's mm-hmm. also business-relevant metadata, like if you have a senior SUECA card, uh, you get senior's rebate when you use the thing. Uh, there's no like standardized way across train companies to say this is a senior rebate card, right? Um, so all of this is examples of non-standardized data.
0: Sorry to come back to your example of the uh, 20,000 yen limit. Yes. But do you mean that the limit is imposed by the machine that recharged the card? but it- In theory, the data format allows to for more or less unlimited amount of money on it. Is that what you mean by the limit here? And then the I believe
1: that's correct.
0: Uh, Okay, okay, I see. So it's more kind of a the limit is less about the money you want to store, but possibly maybe like a fraud and a loss prevention limit, saying like, okay, i have already like. Nineteen thousand yen on it. You don't want if you lose your car, you don't want to lose that much money, and that's why we yeah, don't allow you. you to can never
1: more. lose more than twenty thousand yen if you lose your car, which is a good thing because it's kind of it's a prepaid card. All your money is on the card, right? Right. But like, there's no standardized way of declaring that on the card itself, so that other devices can read it and apply those rules correctly.
0: I see. I see. Because the idea is if somebody wants you to go over the limit, the data format won't block them and then they can like charge you 20,001 yen and then that's okay.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure how exactly it works in that scenario, but the point was more if the limits can't be enforced in any kind of standardized way across. If you're not using the same software everywhere, it's just not going to be applied correctly. It's kind of a minor point. It's not that important for the point i'm
0: trying to make (laughs) okay no i just want to make sure i was still following (laughs) yeah yeah.
1: um so there was a push to try and actually add interoperability because all of these cards like i listed like what like at least there were 10 of those and there were probably like 30 more in the smaller regular regional list let's say about 40 ic cards came out in the span of 10 years uh So that's a lot of cards and you were just wandering around Japan and either you were using your regional card that you were uh, planning on using, and then you were using paper tickets everywhere you went, but that was inconvenient and people really wish they could use the same card everywhere. So originally, the way they dealt with this is by signing one-off interoperability deals. Uh, They did this for about a decade. It was kind of a disaster. Because you never knew what to expect from these deals. Some deals were mutual. Some deals were one way. Some were mutual but limited to train ticketing only and not retail payments. So you would use your card to get on the train but then you would go to the convenience store and try to pay for something and it wouldn't work. Uh, And then you had to repeat this with every permutation of combination of cards across the entire network. And it was incredibly confusing to figure out. There is a super great user on Wikipedia whose name I forgot to note who has only been drawing complicated card interoperability diagrams for the last like 20 years for the Wikipedia article about transit IC cards. Um, and you had to spend almost more time looking at this diagram on Wikipedia trying to figure out if what you were trying to do was legal then you were actually looking at the railway map to determine where you were going. Uh, And like Tokyo has a pretty complicated transit map, but it was more complicated than that. Uh, So that was a disaster. And in March of 2013, they sort of realized that it was kind of bullshit. And they sort of created something that would clarify a lot of this. And that is they created the Transit IC brand. So if you ever see a little choo choo train that has an i for a chimney and a c for the for the train uh that is transit IC. uh it is a brand that regroups the big 10 that i listed on the uh, on the previous section and i remember this launch very well personally because i went to nagoya literally like 2 weeks before this went live and my card wouldn't go through and i was like huh i thought i read somewhere that it would work and yeah it would work in like 2 weeks um so <laughs> I had some firsthand experience with this not being alive yet. Uh, And basically what transit IC means is it sets strict guidelines on how your interoperability works. So you know what to expect when you see that symbol. And it's pretty simple within the transit IC network, you have mutual interoperability for base services. And what I mean by base services is you can ride the train and you can buy stuff in stores. So if you are in a Suica native zone, you can use Ikoka to get on the train from another region. No problem. Uh, You can use any other transit IC card as well. I'm just using it as an example. If you're you're in an Ikoka native zone, you can also use Suica to get on the train or any other transit IC card. Uh, So that is no longer a mystery to solve every single time you try to get on a train. If you go to a restaurant and you see a Transit IC logo on the payment terminal, you can pay with any Transit IC card. You don't have to worry about it. There is one exception, uh, but it's a very notable exception, and that is the Pitapa card. Uh, Pitapa is the only Transit IC card that is not a prepaid card. It is a postpaid card. You get a bill in the mail every month, and you have to pay it off. This card is only available for train ticketing. You cannot use it in stores. Uh, So... Obviously, it is excluded from being usable in stores elsewhere on the network, but that is the only exception. Everything else is mutually interoperable. Now, let's say you go to uh, those weird regional cards. Uh, You you go outside the Transit IC network. How does that work? Well, it's one-way support. So if you're in a zone that uses the weird regional IC card, you can use a Transit IC card to get on the train, no problem. But you can't go to a Transit IC gate uh, let's say at a JR station and use your weird regional IC card. It won't work. Uh, you also can't use it to make retail purchases at stores because it's not a transit IC card. It's a weird regional IC card.
0: Was there a, a, any pushback for that? And the main thinking I could see for this is the Bay, the big 10 card standard that you mentioned, they are for big Japanese region, right? And maybe the original feels that they'll be kind of, I will use the 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 word buyout, but they will be kind of forced to move to those big nameplates because there'll be less and less people using them and there'll be more advantages to use the transit I see than, using, than people living in those small region and using the region-specific card.
1: I love your questions tonight because they lead great into where I was going.
0: I haven't (laughs) seen your notes, so that's fine. Yeah,
1: it's great. Uh, Usually your questions, like, they end up spoiling something that comes much later, but now (laughs) they they are leading right into it. So when I was talking about uh, what is possible within the network, I did mention base services, but there are other services that go on top of that. Supplementary services, such as commuter passes, can only be used on a certain train company's native ic card Mm. and this can lead to a lot of awkward shit um so there are two main cases i can think of for this in big metro areas you can have two transit ic cards that have area overlap so in tokyo this is the case in tokyo you can use suica on jr lines and you can use pasmo on everything else And this is a problem if you use services on both or you change jobs and now you have to change what services you're using. Uh, I will get into a real world example in a little sec. Then in regional areas, like you were talking about, local transit uses a non-transit IC card. But oftentimes, if you're in a small regional area, you also have to go to a big city outside And you're still reliant on a transit IC card for the wider area. So in this case, you end up using two cards instead of one. And it's not really the case that uh, the small regional provider will switch to the greater card because oftentimes they're not even in the picture of what can be supported on uh, the big cards. Like uh, all of the JR cards only support JR lines. There are no train companies other than JR that can use that card. Uh, I mean, you you can pay to ride those trains with it, but you can't have your services on that car. Right,
0: right. That's what you mean, like your monthly subs- not, Yeah, your monthly subscription to their service without paying per service per yeah. usage is uh like technology specific at this point or card specific excuse me
1: yeah so i'm gonna give the real world example i was talking about this is gonna be an example in yokohama because i can do it entirely in my head without actually referring <laughs> to anything
0: why am i not surprised about this
1: so yokohama is technically under the uh, tokyo metropolitan area which means it is covered by both suica and pasmo cards uh when it comes to transit ic and let's say i want to get a commuter pass between Kanai station and shin yokohama station the simplest ways to get there are either to take a JR East train or to take the Yokohama City Subway. So which train line I choose to ride to work is going to determine which commuter pass I want to buy, and also which transit smart card I have to use. So Suica is the JR East card, so it can only hold JR East commuter passes, and Passmo is the not-JR East card for the Tokyo metro area, so it can hold Yokohama City subway commuter passes. and. This is where we get into interoperability does not mean functionally equivalent. There are practical implications of uh, this restriction where uh, certain services can only be on certain cards. And that is, if you'll remember, Japanese Apple Pay was Suica only until last fall. So you could be anywhere in Japan. You could put a Suica on your uh, iPhone or your watch. And it would be accepted everywhere the transit IC is accepted. But it was specifically a Suica. So if you needed supplemental services that weren't offered on a Suica card, you were limited to using it for basic services like train ticketing and retail payments. Mm. It's better than nothing, but you can't actually replace your daily transit card with Apple Pay in that scenario. So what that meant is, if you were a Passmo user and you had a Passmo commuter card, a uh, commuter pass, like yeah, you could use Apple Pay on your Apple Watch get on the train, but your commuter pass couldn't be on it, even though Suica is interoperable. Now, luckily for you, Passmo became available to Japanese Apple Pay in October. So this is kind of not a problem uh, in the Tokyo area anymore. All commuters should be able to replace their physical uh, Passmo or Suica passes with Apple Pay. No problem. But this leads me to the other problem, which is if you're literally anywhere else in Japan... None of the other Transit IC cards are right now available through Apple Pay. So you're in this weird limbo state where, yes, you can use Apple Pay through Suica, but if your services that you rely on are not available on Suica, then you're kind of fucked.
0: Right, and it does mean that possibly the other bigger, big uh, metropolitan areas might come to Apple Pay because it it would make more sense to have Apple have deal with those ones, but the original one, forget about it, they'll never... I should say I should not say never but like the chances of it being negotiated in all the different number of cars we discussed till this point makes it nearly impossible for it to ever come on Apple Pay.
1: Well, they are working on a solution. Actually, they're working on multiple solutions and this leads hmm. greatly into where I was going. So, where is this all headed and can we do anything to streamline this nightmare? Uh so Every once in a while on the show, we mention this blog called At a Distance. Uh, it is a blog specifically about Japanese mobile payment infrastructure, and honestly, much of today's episode would not be possible without uh, Joel's great reporting on that blog. Um, but uh, if you've been reading the blog since 2018 or so, you may have heard the terms Super Suica. This episode was originally going to try to explain what the hell Super Suica is, Uh I'm going to spoil it right now and say that Super Suica is not actually a thing that actually exists. It's a name that Joel made up to group together a bunch of things, and I'm not sure he even knows what it is anymore.
0: Uh, <laughs> By the way, uh, I loaded the website, and one of the first posts is a big map. It says, smart card in Japan, inter- interoperation map. As yeah, of that's June the Wikipedia
1: guy I was talking about.
0: Oh, okay. And it's, wow, it's crazy.
1: Yes, and it used to be much worse than that. Super Suica is not an actual thing. It's just a name that Joel made up and groups together a bunch of different initiatives, some of which we will talk about today. It, this is one of the things that kind of bothers me about the blog. And if you're listening, Joel, like, don't think of this personally, but sometimes it's hard to tell where the line is between fact and fantasy and the things he writes, where it's easy to read a bunch of JR press releases and come up with this great narrative that ties everything together. But then when it doesn't actually happen the way you think it is, it's not clear if you're still believing the thing that you thought was going to happen and you're still expecting it to eventually happen that way or if you should just realize that reality has happened or whatever. It's like the goalposts for is Super Suica happening or not keep moving and now I don't know what Super Suica is anymore. So I I just want to get away from using that terminology um, because originally like the goal of this episode was what the hell is Super Suica? Um, at a high level, what all of these initiatives are trying to do is JR East is trying to move Suica from being a specific transit IC card to being a platform that others can build off of. And if you're a cynic, uh, you can see this as a kind of red hat Type strategy move where you can try to become indispensable to the transit IC alliance. Uh, if you didn't hear our desktop Linux episode, that probably <laughs> means no shit to you. But uh, it, basically, they're trying to become like this asset to the rest of transit IC, uh, and perhaps become a more important pillar in it than they currently are.
0: And and it, it kind of goes back to one of my previous questions, which was like, are regional transport authorities afraid that a big player will just be here's what we need to do everywhere in japan now
1: everywhere in japan no but jres does have a a proposition for these people and this is cool because it actually like completely coincidentally launched last week uh so i had an entire week to actually prepare my notes about this part uh nice so one of these initiatives is two-in-one regional affiliate cards. So this launched last week with the Totra card in Utsunomiya Tochigi Prefecture. Uh, this is technically under the JR East service area. The Totra launch really clarified a lot of questions that I had about this entire program, so it's super useful. And all of this is enabled by a new Felica Standard. So uh, back in November, Felica Standard SD2 uh, was released, and they started manufacturing cards that use that spec. And there are a bunch of changes to the storage model of these cards. Literally the storage, like file storage of these cards, which facilitate the sharing of a card by multiple vendors. Uh, Because previously, a card could be used by one vendor and you could partition the card, but it was kind of weird. And this just streamlines a lot of that stuff. And it also takes care of the stuff like... uh, the transit limit that we were talking about earlier, like now there's a standardized way to actually use the limit uh, and declare how much money is on the card so that everyone can get along and not just like do random shit in the field when they feel like it. Uh, So that's cool.
0: Right, and I guess it goes back to your USB stick analogy that they're able to write a data format that is more or less cross compatible, whether like it gets updated in all the different format that each reader will read.
1: Yes, and my understanding is also that uh, different vendors can access different authenticated blocks. Uh, So Mm. if the regional provider wants to write things to their private storage, they can do it without uh, JR interfering and vice versa. So this two-in-one regional affiliate card program is specifically targeted at local area transit providers or regional affiliates, and this is effectively like the solution to all of those little no-name cards that we were talking about earlier. It's for cities that are big enough to need transit, but not big enough to actually be significantly covered by JR trains, which is an oddly specific thing, uh, but there are a lot of those. Um, and there's there's going to be another one that is going to be launching in Iwate Prefecture before the end of the year. I actually think it might be next week. And then I think it goes until next year uh, before there are other cards that launch under this program. But it is a great solution for areas outside of Tokyo within JR East coverage. However, this doesn't resolve the big metropolitan area issue. Specifically, like what I was talking about with the Yokohama example with Suica and Pasmo and commuter passes. If you ignore the history of how this system came to be and you just say, okay, we're starting from zero today, we have Suica. PASMO would be considered a local area transit affiliate. But unfortunately, they are already a transit IC card in the Big Ten. So it would make it really awkward to treat them like they're a local area transit affiliate. So it's just politically not viable to have a two-in-one Suica PASMO card, even though everyone wants that. Mm -hmm. We will return to this idea a little bit later. There's also an unclear story, because this entire initiative is run by JR East, but there are other JRs, like I mentioned earlier. There was JR West, JR Central, JR Kyushu, JR Hokkaido. They have not announced 2-in-1 programs for their cards, so it's not clear what's going to happen outside of the JR East service area. Are they going to do this in other regions? We don't know. They haven't really talked about it. I'm assuming that if this launch goes well, probably they will license out or... Uh, give the technology to other regions and they will do something similar. But will they do it something similar that is cross-compatible? Who knows? (laughs) Like, it's it's a big mystery.
0: It's funny, all this mess boils down to your introduction where you say, JR used to be like a public department of the Japan ministry and now it's got privatized and it got splitted in multiple things. And some people might say that if it was still one public unit maybe it would be simpler
1: yeah you you still have to deal with the other railways which is a well i'm saying problem in like air quotes because it's a problem from their perspective it's not necessarily a problem from the consumer's perspective but uh it would greatly simplify the entire jr story yes uh so there is a. <laughs> it's funny because it, it unintentionally also went right into this, which is they have a plan for that. So, like I mentioned earlier, uh, the other regions right now are not available on Apple Pay. It would be really nice if they could get on Apple Pay real quick. Do you know how they could do that? Mm,
0: good question.
1: You license out the mobile Suica backend to other transit
0: cards. <laughs> Sure. Okay, <laughs> but by doing that, does it doesn't it mean that they'll need to use Suica?
1: No. Uh, it's just the backend. end. The, okay. the part that talks to the cards is still separate. So you write your own code that talks to the cards. But the entire backend infrastructure is effectively the same as Mobile Suica. And uh, there is a, an implementation of this that went live. It is Mobile Passmo, which went live, live in October. <laughs> so okay. the competitor to Suica actually uses Mobile Suica's infrastructure to be in production and the mobile passmo app is literally a color shifted version of the mobile suica app except with passmo logos everywhere it is super strange everybody was freaking out the day it came out because it looked like they had like disassembled the suica app and just changed a couple strings and then published it and that's kind of what they did uh it was even talking to jreast.co.jb or whatever it was like real fucked up um (laughs) But this is an actual business plan from JR East. Uh, They are licensing out and white labeling Mobile Suica. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it. So they already did all of the integration with Apple Pay. So you can buy in to an express lane for Apple Pay in a way, which is kind of cool. They have already done all of the work to integrate the card recharge system with all of the payment methods that are popular. So you don't have to worry about that there is already like some base level of interop uh, or data interop between all these companies anyway, because they're part of transit IC. Uh, so all this really does is it significantly lowers the barrier of entry to, for transit IC cards to enter the mobile, uh, the modern era of mo- mobile payments. And they've announced another partner for this. So mobile ECOCA, which I believe is the JR West. Let me see. Let me scroll up. Yeah. ECOCA is JR West. So, Mobile Coca is going to be effectively a Mobile Suica spinoff that is going to be released sometime in summer of 2023. And they are just going to repeat the same thing they did with Mobile Pass Mode and hope it goes well. I don't know. There's nothing real bad for me to say about this. It's just real strange. Uh, but I kind of like it because it means more cards are going to be on Apple Pay quicker. And I assume Android Pay, like the entire Android side of the equation is a big mystery to me because I have no visibility into that at all. But yeah, it's pretty interesting as a strategy. And uh, I guess it I've heard this described as mobile as a service, which is kind of true, but it's kind of... Makes
0: sense. Makes sense.
1: Okay, do you want to talk about uh, ultra-wideband now? Yes. Okay, so December 2019, Docomo, Sony, and NXP Semiconductors announced that they are working on next-generation mobile Felica. Uh, This was three months after the iPhone launched with an ultra-wideband chip. Hmm, weird timing. <laughs> uh, and effectively what this does, uh, this next-gen mobile Felica lets you swap the NFC-F. I- I'm using this because since it's called mobile Felica, it's hard to tell what I'm talking about when I say Felica. Um, it lets you swap out the NFC-F transmission method of Felica with ultra-wideband and Bluetooth.
0: And Bluetooth? Yeah,
1: you're talking to the exactly the same file structure that exists in a traditional Felica card. It's just instead of talking about it over an NFC equivalent protocol, uh, you're talking about it, uh, talking to it through ultra wideband, which is a wider reach. Uh, You don't actually have to be within uh, 80 something millimeters of the reader. You can be further away. And this effectively means that you can keep your phone in your pocket. Uh, or in your bag, and just walk through a gate with a big antenna on top of it, uh, and you don't need to tap into the gate at all. Uh, and let
0: me guess, it is to go from sixty people a minute from one gate to maybe ninety people a minute in one gate.
1: No, I believe the oh, okay. the handling time is about comparable on both. Okay. Uh, um, but the the benefit here, because it's just like a, a wholesale swap out of the wireless section of the of the equation is that basically the exact same software should change, uh, should work with no significant changes Uh, because you're effectively just talking to the same card. It's just through a wire, a different wireless technology. Uh, And when they announced this uh, collaboration in December 2019, they announced three tentpole features, and I think one of these interests you greatly, and it has nothing to do with this episode, but it's still going to interest you greatly. So the first one is hands-free, touchless, cashless payments, or what we've been calling mobile payments up until now, except uh, it just happens by walking through a gate or whatever. Uh, the second, digital car keys. Uh, this Ooh. is something that Apple has alluded to with the car key technology that they launched at la- well, they announced at last WDC. Yeah,
0: I wasn't said they alluded; they really went all in last dub dub. Yes,
1: and they said that that was going to be available through NFC and through uh, ultra wideband, and this seems to be within the, that realm. And the third feature kind of really sucks, but I guess it's something people <laughs> are interested in, which is transmitting ads and promotional coupons from Ooh. digital billboards. i don't think anyone is excited for that one um but i do have uh two videos in the show notes uh two demos of those first two so there is the hands-free touchless cashless payments demo and the digital car keys demo uh both from january of 2020 um so you can go watch
0: those if you're interested uh in seeing that uh before we because i haven't watched them i'm a bit concerned about the touch-free cash-free one because again cash-free okay but for the purpose of you have a phone in in your pocket and you go through a gate and you pay your like uh, commuter pass as you mentioned makes sense right you don't want to tap your card and just go go through the gate but like i don't want to go outside the store or outside like go out of the (laughs) restaurant and then it auto charge me like those uh, amazon grocery store it's kind of feels a bit weird i feel again maybe in 15 10 years we'll be like oh who cares you're just an old grumpy person but i feel that there should be uh, uh why am i blanking on the word but commitment like really intention that yeah. okay i'm paying now and i press a button or i do an action that shows commitment to paying and you oh, just you'd
1: love qr code payments there's no way you accidentally do that
0: <laughs> don't extrapolate too much i feel that apple pay and like the what we call mobile payment here in the west is like you show clear commitment that like you yeah. bring your phone close to the terminal and stuff like that i think this is a clear indication but like me taking my shit and walking out of the store and then everything is automatically charged okay
1: you know what the funniest thing is is when i saw the payment demo i was like this could entirely be fake. It could just be like an NS timer that counts down five seconds and then do, reduces 500 yen from the from the thing that's appearing <laughs> on screen because how am I going to know? It's like, right. it, it it's super easy to fake. So I, I am not entirely sure if this actually works in reality. But the other thing is like, like you're saying, like I don't think this is necessarily a use case that I want. Like, especially people are already panicking about like, RFID credit cards or whatever, and mm-hmm. people stealing your like. If you can just randomly make payments on people's phones without asking, it's just weird as hell. Um But I guess we'll see.
0: Right, and again, I see the benefit for a transit mindset. Yeah. Again, even if it's been nearly years and since I took transit, like even with our slow system here in Montreal, it was like nice to just like go through the gate. You know, you go through and then done. No need to worry mm-hmm. about anything, but for the paying of retail and restaurant places, maybe I can have some like intent.
1: Yeah, uh, and we're gonna have to see like how that is presented in actual, real world yeah, use right. cases, because right now we're seeing like these probably staged demos of stuff yeah, yeah, that yeah. they're doing at conventions.
0: And to me, wh- whether you do that with public transit. Or oh, you did that with your own car with a digital key. They're the same thing. You want to, yeah. when you grab the grab handle, like the door opens, you're in the car, you press start. Or if it's an electric car, you just start. Like it starts and it drives, right? And those are really, really nice uh, advances, I would say.
1: So one of the things that's pretty cool is JR East has said in 2016 that they really want next generation transit to getting to be standardized across the world. I'm not sure how much I believe that this is actually going to happen, but they said they would like it to be the case and that they wouldn't want to be stuck in another scenario where Japan is on some weird splinter technology off on their own and the rest of the world is using some other thing. They would like it to be universal. Uh, I don't know to what degree they will succeed that and honestly... The entire ultra-wideband space has been very sparse with details recently, so I'm not sure how quickly that is moving. Um, There have been some rumors uh, that JR might actually be doing uh, field tests of these gates. Uh, Well, they were rumored for last year. That obviously didn't happen because of COVID. And that they might have been considering like a launch window within the next three years for this technology. I think it's still a little early because we haven't really seen anything aside from those Docomo uh, open house demos. But the thing is, you've sort of got two options going forward. One is ultra wideband and the other is unfortunately face recognition. So the Osaka Metro wants to implement face recognition gates in time for the World Expo in 2025. Ugh. A- Nec is working on face recognition technology that works with when face masks are being worn. Uh, if you can Ooh. put that into face ID, yes, please. But if you can, please keep that off of the transit gates. That would be nice too.
0: <laughs> or from the police, the police face scanner yeah. and stuff like that. Oof, oof, that sounds like a privacy nightmare.
1: And that's already a privacy nightmare in China and other places. So I true. don't think that's a good idea. Uh, so fingers crossed the JR East gets our shit together and has some good ultra-wide band shit for us uh in the near future. So now we get to my part, which is this section in my notes that says Yannick's confusion about all of this.
0: <laughs> so that's a great title for it.
1: When I was researching this episode, I was super confused because originally when I saw this stuff about two-in-one regional cards, first of all, I thought Passmo... Pasmo Suiko was going to be a thing. And that was clearly not going to be a thing. The other thing is, I didn't actually realize that the 2-in-1 was literally 2-in-1, and not all-in-1. And this uh... brings me to my first question. If a 2-in-1 card is possible, why can't we have an all-in-1 card instead? So in this case, your, uh, your Transit IC card would have one purse value, which would be controlled by the Transit IC Alliance. You would, as this group of uh, transit companies come up with standardized data formats for all of your common metadata. So this means if you have a senior's discount, you tag it in the same way for each company and not in 17 billion different ways. And then you can have vendor tagged service metadata. So if you have a commuter pass that can only be used on the Tokyo Metro, then tag it with Tokyo Metro and have some Tokyo Metro specific authentication check on that. But still let as many vendor-tagged services exist on the same card as possible. Maybe there are storage limitations there, I don't know, but more than two would be great. The most common problematic scenario, which is uh, the overlapping transit IC card members like uh, Suica and Pasmo... um, That could be resolved if you just decide, okay, we're demoting Passmo to a local area transit affiliate so they can be used in a two-in-one card. Like I said earlier, not going to go down well politically, probably not going to happen. However, in this imaginary scenario, if you make an all-in-one card, it would solve all of the same problems. And instead of demoting your transit IC members to a local area transit, you're elevating the local area transit to only slightly below uh, Transit IC members because you're giving them all mutual interoperability by being on this card, and you're giving them increased control on their own services. At the same time, it's not politically awkward for the people who are in Transit IC. It's just everyone else on the bottom got got elevated higher. Um, Then there's the whole white-label Mobile Suica thing. So what's interesting about white-label Mobile Suica is it's bringing consistency to the services backend and to the user-facing UI for these IC cards. But it feels like a weird oversight, and you mentioned this yourself, to not use this weird carrot and stick to also bring consistency to the data storage formats. Like, you could just be, as JREs say, if you want Mobile Suica, you're going to have to use our data formats for your stuff. <laughs> um, maybe this is being done to preserve compatibility with existing cards uh and like there are a lot of existing cards, so I understand that this is a concern, but it would have been really cool to migrate all those formats <laughs> together and the other thing that I'm seeing here is ultra wideband is a really nice and convenient technological migration to use as an opportunity to merge those standards together and move over to a unified data format. But as I mentioned in the ultra-wideband section, one of the benefits of ultra-wideband as it's being implemented is it's completely cross-compatible with the existing data formats, which means you don't have to change any software, which means they won't change any software, which sucks because they're not actually integrating their formats together. So, yeah, it kind of sucks.
0: (laughs) Though, as kind of a backward compatibility success story and I call it a success story without it being fully implemented but bear with me for a sec it's kind of nice you know that they are modernizing the communication airwaves let's put it this way without changing anything in the software and format it's just that the way the binary bits are sent uh, over something over the air has changed and that I, I find it cool but again it still keeps this old archaic model of data formats. This is kind of being. the
1: running theme with this entire thing is from a technological point of view, a lot of this is super elegant. And then from a logistical, political point of view, it's a complete nightmare. <laughs> and I think that's a lot of... Actually, that's just a general theme of Japan in general, to be honest. Like, yeah, that sounds about right. Um. <laughs> so... This multi-in-one card that I'm uh, suggesting, or all-in-one card that I'm suggesting, seems like such an obvious solution to most of the problems that arise with today's solutions to these problems that I'm almost unwilling to believe that there isn't a good technical reason why they can't do this. Uh, I don't actually know enough about the low-level details of how Felica works to give a definite answer, like a yes or no, to if this is even possible, but I was thinking about it earlier tonight and I would not be shocked if it's something really, st- really stupid. Like each authentication partner needs to have their keys on the card for authentication to be possible. And that means that if you do an all in one card, you can't add more companies dynamically over time, which means it's going to be all in one for like a year. And then there's going to be another rail line. And then it's going to be, well, shit, we need to add another key, or we need everyone to switch to the new card. Maybe. This is the case. I don't know. I can't verify this, but it would also explain why uh, all of the 2-in-1 Suica cards are different branded cards for each combination of Suica plus local area transit. So, uh, the Utsunomiya card is Totra, but if you go to uh, Iwate, it's Iwate Green Pass. And even if you go to Northern Iwate, they're planning a different name card for that combination of Suica plus local area transit. So, Maybe there's a technical reason for why they're only doing these two-in-ones and it's because they want to reduce the amount of issues with authentication keys or something technical like that. But from an outward user perspective, it seems absolutely insane that there is not an all-in-one card and it's kind of a mess. Are you ready to move on to QR code payments?
0: Oof. <laughs> Oof. You asked the same question about although uh, a wideband, and yeah, I was ready. But QR car QR code payment types and payment methods. Oof. Let's go through it. It's gonna be funny. It's gonna be funny. I'm sure it is. Okay, so uh I didn't
1: realize that Japan was actually like super horny for QR codes <laughs> until mid 2019 because of the 7-Pay debacle. Uh, You may have heard about this because it was all over the news for a while, uh, especially in the tech industry. Uh, So 7-Eleven, for a really long time, they had a Felica-based e-money card called Naneko for, I think they launched like in 2003, 2004, something like that. Uh, I know Richard used it when he was in Japan and he was there like in 2005, 2006. So it was fairly early on in the whole Felica craze. Um, they sort of decided that they were going to deprecate this payment method in favor of a QR code payment, payment app called seven Pay. So launch day comes around and surprise, it got hacked on the very first day. <laughs> the first day? First day. Wow. Uh, they lost 55 million yen or 510,000 US dollars uh which is a lot for launch day i would say uh because like how much money realistically did the customers put in that system on launch day um so yeah uh it i believe the issue was that they had an open id connect login that you could pair with uh like let's say your google account or whatever and they just like weren't checking anything that was being returned back and just letting you log in without a password or something and you could just oh, spend no. everyone's money uh so oh, that was no. cool Yeah. Wow. Uh, great launch. Uh, now, unsurprisingly, 7 Pay never actually recovered from the reputation damage that they got on launch
0: day. Uh, <laughs> I can imagine.
1: So this is the shortest living uh, QR code payment app with three months of lifetime uh, before being shut down. Exactly three months. It shut down on uh, on October 1st and it launched on July 1st.
0: <laughs> so did they revert back to their Philika base cards?
1: Uh, I think they never actually completely ended uh, supporting it. So I think, yes, they are just back to riding that pony, I believe. But I am i honestly don't know. Yeah. So you might think with a disaster like that, like why would Japanese businesses be so horny for, uh, for QR codes? Why do they want to abandon Felika for payments when it's so reliable and it works super well? And apparently the answer is big data. So... The problem with Felica is that it's, it accidentally prevented your privacy, and that's bad. Um, so anyone can buy Felica cards for uh, for e money anonymously at any train station or convenience store, and that's bad because that means they can't trace you with your personal information and sell information about your purchasing habits by demographic. So uh J- Japanese companies were like no that's unacceptable we absolutely must sell our users data uh so we must dump Felica and go towards the great world of QR codes and unsurprisingly a ton of QR code payments ha- payment apps have sprung up these are just the ones that are listed on the page on wikipedia there are probably more actually there are definitely more because i've seen more than these um so Amazon Pay apparently exists. I had no idea. Uh, AU Pay, which is run by the AU uh, phone carrier. Uh, Diharai, which is owned by Docomo, which is another uh, phone carrier. Bank Pay, which I don't even know what bank it is, but <laughs> it, it, you can pay with the bank. Uh, Family Pay, which is owned by the Family Mark convenience store. Pring, which I believe is a startup and it is the only one in all of these, which is a startup. Pay which is the big one, which is owned by SoftBank and Yahoo Japan, although now it is owned by Line because it... Line bought it a couple of weeks ago. The whoa, wait, Line bought who exactly? Yahoo Japan.
0: Oh wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, Mercari Pay. Mercari is a big e-commerce company in Japan, uh, similar to Rakuten, but not Rakuten because they are listed separately. Uh, Yucho Pay, which is Japan Post. Uh, the post office is a bank in Japan, so naturally they have their own QR code payment app for fuck's knows why. <laughs> uh, line Pay, of course. uh, which I think we know because it's in line. Uh, Rakutenpe, as I mentioned. So that's just the short list of the most used ones. Uh, The user experience for all these QR code apps fucking suck. Uh, All of these have inconsistent user interfaces. It's kind of like the good old days of Twitter clients when everything was a UI playground because this is a new category of app and everyone needs to try their things. Uh, I would be shocked if uh, in a year or two, they just don't alt copy Pepe's UI because it's, it's not good, but it's what people are used to. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) now here's the thing that sucks is before you walk into the store, you have no idea which flow you're going to have to use because there are two flows for all of these apps. You can either show your QR code to the cashier, or you can scan a QR code that is on the, uh, Oh, no. On the payment terminal.
0: And they're not consistent, of course. <sighs>
1: of course not. So w- when you show your QR code, it's effectively like a deep integration with PayPay. Where, well, I'm talking about PayPay now because I've seen the most about PayPay. Um, so when you show your QR code, it's because they've made an order to the uh, to the PayPay server. And then they just want to validate who's the person paying. If you scan the QR code, it's even worse. It's like an old payment terminal, except you are the payment terminal. You have to manually punch in how much you're paying and then show it to the cashier. And then they nod and they press a button on their payment terminal. And then some weird handshake happens and it's complete bullshit. Uh (laughs) Oh my goodness. Uh, Another thing that sucks about this user experience... is that it's dependent on network reachability. It doesn't work offline. So sometimes you see this, and this is really funny when it happens and when you identify what's happening because, like, the first time you see it, you think everyone is losing their shit. Uh, <laughs> checkouts in stores can get completely clogged with people who have bad cell reception or flaky Wi Fi. Uh, oh, no. I went, yes, I went to like a dollar store equivalent in Yokohama last year, uh, not last year, two years ago, and it was absolutely hilarious because everyone was staring at their phone and looking miserable. And I was just like walking past these suckers paying with Suica. And it was, if you feel so good walking past these losers who are staring at their phones, waiting for a QR code to show up. It's also dependent on uh, the servers being up. So back in August, uh, AWS went down and Pepe was down for seven hours.
0: Of course it was down. Of
1: course. Uh, Of course. Uh, So like after the internet, yeah, if you compare that with Felica-based e-money cards, the only thing that happens if servers are down is you can't recharge from credit card. Everything else continues to work because it's a completely offline system. And even in the best case, when all of this shit works correctly, it's still slower than using Transit IC. So naturally, everyone comes to the same question, myself included: Why are people using these shitty apps? Uh, and I'm going to look at the top two apps just because they are using completely different approaches. But all of the other ones are sort of trying to emulate one of these approaches. Um, so Pay is following very closely in the footsteps of Chinese chat app-based QR code payment apps. Uh, so WeChat has one of these. Uh, I believe it's called WeChat Pay, but I'm not entirely sure because I don't really know the Chinese side of things as much as I should.
0: I. I... Think you're correct? The, like the the name rings a bell when you said it. So. Yeah, there's
1: AliPay, there's WeChat Pay, right. there's another one, and yeah. Um, and the thing about these chat-based payment apps is that it has a better hook than the other ones, which is is it's as much about sending money between friends as it is as using that money on retail retail purchases. So, if you actually spend money in stores using Line Pay. Uh, you get points and those points can be used towards line stickers and themes. And since line is the primary way that people text in Japan, uh, that means you basically just get free shit for your texting app, which is cool. Uh, It's not particularly like worth a lot of money, but it's still cool. Um, It's also really well suited to the culture of going out with a group of friends and splitting the bill when a lot of places in Japan that are not like restaurant chains will not do split payments so you can't split the bill at the cash register you have to basically fork out exactly the amount of cash that you're supposed to and it's pain in the ass and i never have enough cash on hand anyway Uh, so being able to just pay the bill to my friends with uh with line pay is cool it's also synergistic so uh, there are a bunch of tools available to small businesses through uh, the line app program and the official accounts program for promotional purposes. So if you're a small business uh, or a small retail store, uh, you can do things like, for example, give rebates to people who follow you online. And uh, if you pay through Line Pay, it just authenticates that at the moment you pay. Uh, and... The important thing is everyone in Japan is online so you really don't have an excuse not uh, to use it. You pretty much everyone is using it because an opportunity comes up to actually send someone some money and you probably don't have cash on hand so you send it via Line Pay and that's how the network effect works. So Line Pay I can actually like understand why people are using it even though it's kind of still a bad QR experience like there are valid reasons to use it.
0: PayPay, on the other hand. Wait a sec. I, I, uh, small tangent on what you just said about uh, Line and its Chinese equivalent. I kind of wish those were popular here in Canada. And I'll say in Canada because there's equivalent in the US for exchanging easily, easily exchanging money with, between friends. Yeah. Uh, because I think, as far as I recall, Line and all the Chinese equivalent, they started by only allowing exchange of money between friends kind of a digital wallet to like to pay that between friends and then they've expanded to retail business restaurants and like businesses overall to pay that as an added benefit on top of their platform
1: i believe line pay didn't launch exclusively as interpersonal uh Mm. i think because of the small businesses stuff they did the launch for both at the same time it's just we had less visibility on it because only only the interpersonal part is available in canada whereas in japan it all launched at once
0: oh wait i didn't even know that the interpersonal part offline is available in canada
1: I believe it is. I mean we have the line pay UI every time we go into the app, so I assume it's available in Canada. Hmm.
0: Maybe one time when we're able to see each other and I pay or you pay for a coffee and stuff like that. Maybe we should try it.
1: Hmm. Yeah, we we should check it out. The the only thing that kind of worries me is like let's say I configure my account for Canadian line pay or whatever. If I go to Japan, can I still pay at places with line pay? hmm Like, that's the thing I'm not sure about. Like, that's unclear, but I guess we'll figure out on a future episode. <laughs> so, in order to explain how PayPal works, I'm going to need you to explain a Canadian tradition to our listeners. Okay. Can you explain the Tim Morton's Roll Up the Rim promotion?
0: Oh, uh, yes. Uh, but before I do, did you know that this year's Roll Up the Roll Up tra- promotion has been moved inside the app?
1: Uh, No, I did not know that.
0: Okay, so... Explain the traditional one and not the app one. (laughs) No, no, but you'll see. I'll explain the app one after. So, uh, for our international listeners, Tim Hortons is like a big, cheap coffee and donuts place uh, throughout Canada. And I say that, but I think they are throughout the world these days. They've expanded in the U.S. I think they even expanded in China. So, uh, you might have... Uh, encounter Tim Hortons somewhere else but at a certain moment in the year uh, they have a big promotion where they give things away for quote-unquote free the idea is you buy your coffee uh, and you know the the, the the cardboard coffee cups they always have kind of a border that is rolled up right but they thought I think 20 years ago it's, it's a long-standing Canadian tradition right? like Enick mentioned where when this promotion goes up, the way to know whether you will run something or is you need to roll up the border and figure out whether you want something or not. Uh, so that has been on the paper cups for years. And this year, they decided to put that inside the app, part of their loyalty system. So you fake roll up the border. application. <laughs> must be the application. so much less fulfilling. <laughs> yeah, but it's because like, Now you can always win because the minimum amount is they give you free points for the loyalty program. Ah, I see. That's why they also (laughs) move it inside the app is to promote their loyalty program.
1: Okay. Well, that's cool because it kind of actually works even better to my advantage in the example I was trying to make. Uh, PayPay is Tim Morton's pay. What? PayPay is effectively roll up the rim all year long for QR code payments. Okay. the model that PayPay is using to attract people to their app is gamification. And it's actually kind of terrible and sleazy when you realize what is going on. It's also kind of genius. So when you go to the PayPay app, the bottom half of the app's home screen is reserved for active promotions. And there's a big one every month. And promotions either fall in the progression-based bucket or in the randomized bucket. And whichever one it is they award you free money uh so mm. the progression based system is it's kind of like an event in a mobile game uh it gives you various goals to hit and those goals will either award you fixed sums that are added to your pay pay balance or they increase a ca- cash back percentage that will be awarded at the end of the month for all of your purchases that month
0: Ooh, that's tempting oh uh-huh. i see why people oh that's brilliant
1: Then there's randomized systems, which is you make a payment. There's like a little slot machine under your payment thing confirmation that rolls between, let's say, uh, 0% and 33 to 50%, depending on the month, on how much cash back you get back for
0: that thing. Oh, and it goes as high as 50% cash back?
1: We'll get as to how they are actually funding this later, but yes, uh, sometimes it does. So it doesn't feel like you're actually spending money. It feels like you're playing a video game where you spend money um and naturally that encourages you to funnel as much of your spending into pay as possible to get the good feeling from making numbers go up in video games mm-hmm. um there's also bonuses that are awarded if you use other yahoo and SoftBank services i don't know how this works now that line purchased them but i assume it's still the same thing um so for example if you go buy shit on yahoo shopping you're going to get bonus cash back if you buy things on uh if you're a SoftBank user Uh, whenever there are like progression based systems, like being a soft bank user is one of those progression based goals and you get like plus 3% cash back for the month or whatever. Uh, Uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, here's an example of one of their most famous, uh, promotions, which was the 10 billion yen giveaway. So they were trying to get to 5 million users and they were giving up to 2000 yen away per new user. And the way they were doing this is you got 500 yen instantly when you were uh, signing up for a new account. Mm-hmm. when you were charging your balance for the first time you got a thousand yen and then if you're a soft bank customer and you register a payment method for charging your balance you get an extra 500 yen
0: and remind me the conversion rate y-
1: you can basically assume that 100 yen is a us dollar
0: oh wow so it's 20 f- bucks wow okay Whew. i can't understand why people were like going crazy and registering accounts and all that fun stuff yeah, so uh, PayPay is extremely
1: popular because people love free money. Uh, and surprising absolutely no one, PayPay is not profitable. Uh, they had a <laughs> $771 million US dollar loss in financial year of 2019. It's probably going to be more in 2020. And the reason for that is that the uh, CEO of SoftBank, masayoshi Son has said publicly he will burn as much cash as he needs to take over the mobile payments market.
0: Oh, Really?
1: That's their strategy to just like kill everybody else. User acquisition, baby. Uh, so there are zero merchant fees if you want to use PayPay. <laughs> of course. Oh my goodness. As I mentioned, never ending ridiculous cash giveaway promotions for user acquisition. And uh, since COVID happened and everyone is allergic to cash all of a sudden, uh, mobile payments adoption has gone super up in Japan in the last year. Not that it was low before, but still. Uh, And PeiPay has decided that they want to capitalize on that. So they've been doubling down with giving crazy amounts of
0: money. (laughs) Oh, wow. Let me, let's be honest. It it is a brilliant strategy. And if they have enough financing to back it off uh they're more or less pulling the uber strategy to ride ailing right it's like we'll kill everybody and then we'll be the only one and then jack up the price
1: it's genius but it's also like people are putting up with this bullshit user experience just to get free cash like at a certain money like everyone has a price i get it but it's like and, and the thing is, like as I mentioned earlier, like there are like fifteen or whatever, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, eleven major payment apps, QR apps. So sometimes you'll go to like a store or something, and behind the counter there are like five cell phones behind <laughs> oh, the <yes>. cash register, <laughs> all running a different
0: payment app this reminds me of a restaurant having five ipads running all those now like delivery food delivery services uh, to make sure yeah. that they st- and those apps are coded to kind of like be the most interactive when they are front most right they want yeah. you to be front most so it's fast and then you go to your favorite restaurant because you're kind and you don't go through the service you go uh, or you either call i know but it's better to call than uh, forcing them to pay 30% of their sales. So I tried to do that. But either when you were able to go or you you go on a nice day and you see five iPads, like, oh, poor (laughs) damn, five iPads.
1: Well, it's exactly the same thing, but behind every cash register at almost every shop in the world. And you're like, wow, this is fucking stupid. I hope all of these services die so they don't have to actually have like five things behind the cash register. And this is kind of the weird thing is like, For years and years and years, what was great about the Japanese mobile payment infrastructure is since everything was this transit IC standard, you could more or less just go into any store, say transit IC, they would press the transit IC button on the cash register, you would tap and you would be out of there. Now they have like 15 different payment method buttons on the cash register and everyone is using a different one. So it's slowing down the process for everybody on top of like the qr code apps just being a slower flow in general it just kind of sucks that this exists and that they're sort of gaming their way to the top of the system like this but i guess that's how business works so uh i want to end this episode by addressing the air of negativity there has been in the japanese tech commentary space with regards to japan's reliance on felica for contactless payments uh this has happened a lot around the olympics which
0: whatever the fuck mm-hmm. happened to those um they're they're so, supposedly on right now uh, not right now but for this year
1: yes but i believe only japanese people will be allowed to go uh spectate
0: yeah you're correct so see no problem with felica
1: uh-huh. Uh but anyway, like before that was the plan, uh they felt super inadequate about uh their usage of felica because uh Japan has this tradition called Galapagos syndrome, which is uh something I have alluded to multiple times in this episode where this isolated country for some reason or another uh winds up in a completely different evolutionary branch of a technology than the rest of the world. And Japan is looking around at basically every other country in the world that is building their uh, transit ticketing on EMV cards and saying, oh, we made the wrong bet again. And this negativity is misguided. Very misguided, in my opinion. Uh, Fundamentally, the market conditions that made Japan evolve in that particular direction haven't changed in 20 years. COVID did increase credit card signups, but not enough for EMV to actually be a viable option for contactless outside of... Uh, big department stores and multinational retail chains. EMV tech, like I mentioned earlier, is still performing worse than Felica did 20 years ago. And it doesn't provide enough throughput to actually be able to handle peak transit hours anyway. So it's like not even part of the debate. So I'm not sure why they're even feeling inadequate. Like you just know that fact and you're like, well, we can't do anything else anyway. Uh, so from a technological point of view, I don't think Japan has anything to be ashamed of with its contactless payment and ticketing infrastructure today. I think they have a lot to be proud of, especially the fact that they were there like 10 years before everybody else, or 10 to 15 years.
0: Wait a sec, though. I, get, I can't get beyond your point about ticketing, but every time we talk about mobile payment in Japan, I always feel that the evolvement of all of these Filika-based te- payments technology to be used in restaurants, in convenience stores, t- to pay shit that is not transit tickets or transit passes, is kind of a act on top. Not I, I-, I use the word act in big scare quotes, but the way I recall things, it was optimized for mobile payments, and the fact that it's kind of a wallet, people started to say, oh, can we just pay with it? And people were like, yeah, more usage on our platform, so why not?
1: Yeah, it was originally meant to increase commerce within train station businesses because usually you're going to be in and out very quickly and that benefits from the same in and out quickness that you want for the transit gates
0: right but that even moved to outside convenience store and merchant inside train station too to these days. yeah yeah it's it's everywhere right and that's where i feel that the Japanese tech people should feel, quote-unquote, ashamed of their tech usage.
1: But what do you propose they use instead? Credit cards?
0: Let's not forget that a recent trend with credit cards, EMV, yes, but EMV is not forced to be based behind credit cards with just our credit culture, right? I'm not saying credit culture is good. Yeah, it could be
1: debit cards or whatever. Right.
0: And I think the involvement we've done on debit card, even if debit card can be a mess uh, because each bank can do their own stuff which is problematic but i think the involvement of debit credit card that we've seen today where you can use your debit card as a credit card and the network is fine and happy about it is a good thing and i think that's that's where all of those technologies i think they're fine they're, you don't need to have something to pay fast like if it takes like 10 more milliseconds for the transaction to authorize nobody will die
1: well, the proof is people are using QR code
0: apps. <laughs> right, right. So that's why I, I think it's fair to say that the technology that we have, to, that the Japanese have today for the transit system, I kind of wish we had it here too, because it would make going through a gate even faster. The fact that the card you have, again, you said that uh, you said it's like a five, a hundred for one, so like your card is worth at most like two hundred dollars. It's not too bad, but again. I don't want to make purchases with like multiple $200 cards, right? When I want to go to buy a camera oh, Best definitely, Buy, yeah. right? That's that's where my thinking is evolving to. With EMV cards, we're able to have secure transactions. And yes, it's it's to have a secure way to exchange money between you and a business. I kind of wish we had some kind of technology to exchange money with people in a secure way and have no amount limits uh, but that's a different topic so i feel that emv technology is a great involvement on top of the magnetic magnetic stripe to have secure transaction between you and a merchant
1: yeah i i think the the thing that is maybe missing from your context is that people in japan wander around with thousands of dollars of cash on
0: them oh my goodness don't really
1: yes so that's how they get around the transit limit Uh, the the card limit for Suka is oh well i will just take out the five thousand dollars cash i have in my pocket right now but
0: i would never do that i I know you
1: wouldn't but like this is the thing with japan's cash culture is there are literally entire shows on tv which are just celebrities talking about how much cash they carry on them on
0: all day I, i know and it's like best example i know it sounds ageism but it's Kind of through from my experience it's like when you talk to your grandparents and they have like maybe two hundred dollars in their wallet and like why the fuck do you have two hundred dollars in your wallet? Like you can have a plastic card that if you lose it, nobody's freaking out about losing two hundred dollars. But yeah, that's that's something I still cannot fathom about the cash culture in Japan.
1: And the, the other thing I would mention here is Japanese banking system is a paperwork hell. Um, especially if you're a foreigner, but not only if you're a foreigner. Uh, like to a certain degree, like if you're a foreigner, good luck getting a credit card. Uh, but it's not just credit cards; it's just banks in general are incredibly complex in Japan in a way that it's not really even comparable to our system here. Mm -hmm. And I think the Falika system, yes, it is flawed in many ways, and it is limited in many ways. But it is just a better fit for daily convenience purchases. Oh, yeah. It's
0: literally electronic money.
1: Yes. And it is made for to excel at that. Right. And, and especially right now in COVID times, it's like this is exactly what you
0: need. You want electric money, but I don't think retailers and restaurants want their consumers to have electronic money. They want to have you a way to spend as much money that you should and that you could not saying it's a good idea but for their own sake of surviving and especially in the covid times like if you can spend more than 200 dollars at one the place they would like you to do that and it, as for you as a consumer i think what we have today is a i understand what you mean because we we really like mix emv technologies with credit card and i'm trying to separate it because if i don't know if you recall it but we kind of live, you and I, the transition. Like, I, I recall opening my first bank account mm-hmm. when this transition was started in Canada, which was maybe 2007, 2008, so around that. My so debit card re- has
1: only ever been uh NFC. So,
0: Right. So my, I recall mine was Swipe. It got exchange, uh And uh, for sure, I know you were with Desjardins. And even getting an NFC card for Desjardins, they were super slow compared to the mm-hmm. other Canadian events. But I digress. Uh, But I recall living this transition and like since then, since I've owned a bank account more or less, we were as a chip and pin. And that to me means literally, yes, there's limit transaction limits, but A, they were higher than what you've discharged because it's not like you're handling cash. And B, if you want to have higher limits, you call your bank, say, hey, I want $5,000 limits because I'm trying to make a purchase and I don't have a credit card. And they're like, sure. They authenticate you. We can talk about the way they authenticate you as being not so secure. That's a different topic. But at least the card with the pin is secure. And then they raise the limit. They let you spend the money you want on the merchant. And then they lower the limit. And everybody is happy because you spent a shit ton of money. So again, I understand that my bias against cash, and you know that I'm well against cash. I don't like to have cash on me. I never use cash when i withdraw cash just for safety purposes if sting i mean uh and i always i always say especially to go back to the comment i was making about it's good to help your restaurant friends right now because they struggle and blah 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 but i recall when we were able to go out and i was like oh this restaurant is cash only Ugh. Something is fishy here to be cash only in our day and age. So again, that's usually my mantra when I see (laughs) cash only places. I'm like, "Mm -mm, yeah, I know why you're cash only places because it's easy to fuck up your numbers. Uh, But I digress. Again, what I'm saying is I always find it strange. And I feel that as a consumer and even as merchant, it's safer to have plastic things that can allow you to spend a lot of money. And then if you lose your money, you don't get fraud, quote unquote
1: yeah I, i'm more of a cash-minded person like I, I don't use credit cards i use debit cards mostly because i don't like having i don't like thinking about money that i do not have and credit cards That's are fair. a nice level of abstraction that do that um and like to to me there's something very clear about recharging a swicker card and i know exactly how much money i have on that card and like in these days i'm only using the suica that's on my watch like no one's gonna run off with my watch without me knowing so it's like the the Fair. chance of theft is really low and i can recharge it from my wrist so effectively like when i'm low on cash i just like turn a dial on my watch and i have more money there now
0: <laughs> so it's like problem solved but- right right no i i see that with the modern integration like when you say like, I know for like you and I, if you were to go to Japan, we will recharge our own credit card, but what would the, uh, local japanese people would do they would like recharge to the vending machines or they would go through a bank transfer like from their bank account like what is kind of the norm to recharge those cards
1: you have a bunch of different ways to do it you can do it from a credit card you can do it from your bank account you can do it from various points rewards cards like if you have a t-point card or something you can transfer those into Suica credit somehow uh i believe now you can even use the qr code apps to pay for your suica and vice versa i think i'm not quite sure how that works um but yeah like basically every imaginable method you could get money onto it you can
0: but the culture started from those vending machines that you can buy everything from like concert tickets that you've talked and great Lens in or i think a bit in the yeah, podcast those, but those the... are in
1: convenience stores but yeah you can Go to a convenience store, charge up your card if you want to, and no problem. They just, like, take the cash and put it on your Suica.
0: Right, right. So I, I kind of see, like, those machines are inconvenient in my book, whereas, like, having it on the Apple Watch is super convenient. Yeah. Okay, I think we've been a big, a big discretion, and I'm sorry, but still, I'm <laughs> super happy to talk about, like, the, the cash mentality in Japan because it always, like, freaks out my mind.
1: Yeah, Uh, I should get back to talking about the negativity about technology, though. So from a technological point of view, like we can disagree, but I I don't personally still don't think that Japan has anything to be ashamed of with its infrastructure. However, from an organizational point of view, like I was talking about earlier, the interop and the consolidation story for all of these different cards that have different file formats and all that shit Mm -hmm. is a huge mess and it's going to get better for people who live outside the big metro areas in the next few years but there still doesn't seem to be any kind of solution in development for the big metro areas and unfortunately for for the uh, for JR and all the other uh, vendors there are more people in those big metro areas that are impacted by those issues than there are regional uh, users who are being inconvenienced by those so maybe we'll have something to report on in the next 10 years i don't know it would be cool if we did uh but i'm not counting on it where tech commentators should be shifting their negativity in my opinion is towards all of the qr code payment space it feels like a novelty bubble that's going to pop as soon as pay is going to stop handing out free cash to everyone and start <laughs> milking profits out of them and like I mean, I get the slot machine thing. I've played Destiny. Like, I know what it's like to get endorphins (laughs) when you get a cool loot drop. But uh, what happens when you take away the slot machine and it's just a payment app that is inconvenient compared to everything else? Are people still going to be interested? Will it matter because all of the other payment options are going to be dead? I don't know. I hope not. Um, And the other thing is QR code payments as a whole are susceptible to... Other seven pay style catastrophes. Uh, And if you remember uh, the early days of Bitcoin wallets, when those were trendy, like, yeah, that happened. The exact same thing there where like poorly coded things in three lines of PHP just got exploited and everyone lost all their money. And that's why you never use a Bitcoin wallet on the Internet, people. Uh, But QR is basically... Just another version of that in my book. And
0: Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you. Uh stop the podcast here. We end it here. This is a special version that I'll put NFT oh, to it no. so that we can sell it and making sure so please people don't lose your NFT wallet. I'd rather make a vinyl
1: version of the podcast vault. and sell it on eBay than this. <laughs>
0: yeah i'm sure at some point small dangers about nfc uh, uh, nfts i'm sure we'll see like vaults being like like they'll, people will offer those like kind of same wallet service but for vaults of those properties oh and God. people will get will get them stolen that's for sure will happen it's already happened i think oh really i've wow. seen
1: stories about people getting their nfts stolen but yeah don't want to talk about it um <laughs> So what's interesting is if you look at the transit systems, uh, transit ticketing systems elsewhere in the world, because they've decided to use EMV as their payment system, they're boxed into that possibility space. Uh, They can only do so much because they are limited by uh, how the payment system works, and they can't really work outside of that box without some real creative work. I talked a little bit to Richard about how um, EMV integration works in London, And how, like, you can't have uh, day or week passes. Instead, they have to apply it as daily and weekly limits, which effectively cost the same as passes. Uh, You can't do monthly passes or yearly passes because then they would have to implement it as a monthly or yearly limit. And they don't want people to not be able to go over the
0: limit. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I can imagine.
1: Yeah. So there's weird awkwardness to the limitations of the EMV payment system and Suica being what they call a closed loop system, which is kind of like a proprietary solution. And once you put money into it, you can't really get it out of it. Uh, It's a nice study of what it would be like if e-money infrastructure was reverse engineered from real customer needs. In this case, transit ticketing as a primary use case. And to some degree, it might have succeeded a little bit too much. At that, uh, Like the privacy protection, because it's an entirely offline system, was completely accidental. And that caused people to take QR codes more seriously because they can use it for big data gathering. Like, I guess it succeeded too much at being only good at what it was trying to do and nothing else. Um, but yeah, I love talking about these technologies because it's so novel and it's so... It's interestingly designed, which is not something I can say about a lot of the technologies that we come up with here in the West. And I think this is going to be a meaty update for the mobile payments fans in our audience uh, who have been waiting to hear more on the topic. And no doubt we will probably in a couple of years have a mobile payments part three or something. I don't know
0: yeah o- hopefully for uh, for for them it won't be in a hundred and fifty five episodes fifty six episodes depending on how you count so yeah in a long time more or less yeah is that it yes good if you'd like to see all the links that Yannick will have included in the show notes, you can find the show notes at limitlesspossibility.net slash 157, so 157. If you want to find the back catalog of episode, you can find it at limitlesspossibility.net. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can find it at Limitla, Limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find myself on Twitter at Lucanouche. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And you can find anything at
1: Sakurina. S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.